So this morning as we finish up with enemies of the heart, we're going to be we're going to be looking at what is called the parable of the dishonest manager. Now this is I think this is one of the most interesting parables Jesus ever told and um and it really deals with the topic of money. Uh, but we're going to we're going to go a little bit um beyond just just kind of money a little bit, but um it's really an interesting interesting passage and I don't know if many of us realize how much Jesus actually talked about money. Do you know that half of the parables Jesus told deal with the topic of money? Isn't that interesting? Um, and not only that, but one out of every six verses in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, deal with money. Jesus talked more about money than he did in heaven or hell. Isn't that interesting? Now you ask, well, why? Why did he spend so much time talking about you know, money? I think the answer is very simple. We spend more time thinking about money than we do heaven or hell. You know, we spend a lot of time earning it, working for it, you know, saving it, spending it, planning it, giving it away. And it impacts so much of our lives on a daily basis. And so uh, it has enormous influence in us. And I think if grace does anything to us, it should transform us into a generous people. Wouldn't you agree with that? Like if, if grace accomplishes anything, it should accomplish that. Because at the heart of the gospel is the fact that God is a giver, and he wants us to be givers. That's at the very heart of it. Now, what's fascinating about this, and, and we're going to read it in just a minute. What's interesting is this is one of the most misunderstood parables that Jesus ever told. The parable of, dishon of the dishonest manager. Because if you just kind of read it on a surface level, if you read it kind of quickly, your first impression is, is that Jesus is commending someone for their dishonesty. And what we're going to see is he's not, he's not doing that at all. Uh, what we're going to see is Jesus uses the story of a crook to illustrate a big, big principle for us today. And we're going to kind of look at that this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to read chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's holy word today? He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, well, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of weed. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. The one who is faithful in very little 
is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If you then, if then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. I really think the key verse of this is verse 8 where, you know, Jesus tells us the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then he comments about how the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than, than the sons of light. So what is Jesus saying? I think, I think right off the bat, I think I need to make two observations as we kind of jump into this today. I think the first observation is this. Jesus is not commending this dishonest manager for his, his con artistry, okay? He is definitely, this manager is definitely a crook. He's a cheater. There's no question about that. Jesus is not commending him for cheating. That is not what's going on here. What he's doing is he's commending him for his shrewdness. And he even says that. And you see that um, in verse 8 that he commended the manager for his shrewdness. Now, when you and I hear the word shrewdness, I think a lot of us have a connotation you know, that comes to our mind that's negative. We, we think of a manipulator. We, we think of a con artist. You, you know, we, we, think of, uh, we think of, you know, some negative, you know, kind of perspective in that way. But that's not really what shrewd means. You see, shrewd really means, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means keen awareness. You know, shrewd is, is basically astute intelligence. And shrewd also means clever resourcefulness. So, so it, really, it really doesn't have that negative connotation to it, but it's really being cleverly resourceful and astutely intelligent and keenly aware of what's going on. The second thing that I would say about this is that Jesus is using this. He's teaching the disciples, but the Pharisees are also listening. And you see that, and we didn't read it. You see it in verse 14, that Luke comments that the Pharisees loved money. In fact, after they heard Jesus tell this parable, the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus for telling it. And so what you see is you begin to see the grip of greed that they had on their heart. And Jesus is going right after them. And he's also sharing with the disciples a very important principle that I think we're going we're gonna to get to. And so I think in this passage, just very simply, just on a, on a basic level, I think there's three truths in this passage that transforms us. Once we, once we appropriate them and understand them, they transform us into a generously shrewd people. And here's the first one. What I think I own is really on loan. I think that's the first thing that we see that Jesus is communicating about, about money and wealth and really so much of life here on earth. What I think I own is really on loan. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, the truth is this, church. We're all just managers of someone else's money. I mean, that's it. You and I are managers. We are, you know, we're basically fund managers of someone else's money. You know what a fund manager is? 
A fund manager is someone who gets paid to manage, manage someone else's wealth. That is exactly what all of us in this room are. We're fund managers. Now the problem starts because our thinking is not scriptural, right? Our thinking is incorrect because, because our default mode or our default perspective is, well, I earned it, it belongs to me. You know, I'm the one that works, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours, whatever. It's my bank account. It's my real estate. It's my car. It's my investment portfolio. You know, it's, it all belongs to me. And so that's kind of our default thinking. I'm going to do whatever I want to do with it because we think it belongs to us. But I think what Jesus is really trying to say, that, that what I think I own is really on loan, that it really comes from God. It all belongs to God. And that's really, really important that God owned it in the beginning and church, God will own it all at the end. And we're managing it in between. So, so in other words, another way of saying it is you brought nothing into this world and, and, and you're not gonna take anything out of this world with you. Does that make sense? And so really God, God has given to us something that used to belong to someone else and then when we die, we're gonna hand it off to someone else. So there's really, there's really nothing that I own. I, I'm, I'm really just a manager. In fact, everything that we have in life, even beyond our money and our bank account and our wealth or whatever, everything that we have in life is a gift from God. Everything, including your own heartbeat. Your own heartbeat is on loan from God. Now I want you to, I want you to just kind of think about the human body for a minute. You know, uh, there are, I, I think there are 11, I mean, I don't have a medical degree or anything, so I could be wrong on this, but I think there are 11 different systems in our physical body. So you got the digestive system and, you know, you got the circulatory system, you got the muscular system, you, you've got about 11 different systems. And, you know, the human body is so complex. It is so intricate. It is so beautiful. Um, and it's, it's, it's so delicate that it's a miracle anybody's at church this morning. It really is. You guys know what I mean? Like, like one thing goes wrong, it throws the whole thing off. Like one thing's off and you don't feel right. And it's an absolute miracle you and I are walking around. It's an absolute gift from God that you and I have enough health to come here today. And, and, it, and the truth about it is, is that everything that we have in our life, from the oxygen that we breathe to the time that we have, the mind that we have, you know, the, the gifts and the abilities that we have, you know, the, and certainly the money that we have, everything we have is a gift from God. And it should be managed wisely. In fact, that you notice, you know, in the parable that Jesus told, there's a recurrence of the word manager or management. And that word, another word for that is stewardship. And the truth is you and I are just stewards for a period of time in this life. And what that means is we're in charge of managing God's wealth that he's entrusted to us. And I think at the very basic level, that is what's going on. You and I are just God's fund manager on the very, on the, you know, just on the simplest level. Now, you need to listen carefully because I'm going to start getting invasive at this point, all right? Um, here's the thing. If you and I are God's fund managers, if what I've just been saying for the last couple of minutes is true, 
And then we're not doing what he told us to do with his wealth. If we're not living a life of generosity, if we're not investing it like he wants us to invest it, then what the Bible says is you and I are robbing God and you and I are thieves. That's what the Bible says. Let me me just show it to you from Malachi 3.8. Okay, so this is God speaking through the prophet Malachi. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Well, in tithes and contributions. You are, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, God says. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking to his people who, who were commanded to tithe, and they're not doing it. And God's saying, they're robbing. They're stealing from me. See, in the Old Testament, everybody was expected to give a tenth of what they had, a tenth of what they earned, a tenth of what they were blessed with. They were to give a tenth back to God. Now, some of you hear this, you think, okay, you know, uh, that's a little much. I don't like this sermon today. I wish we could get to the next week's. You know, uh, I, I, hear, I hear you on that. Uh, but let's just, let's just kind of think about it for a minute, all right? Just, just kind of entertain me uh, for a minute. Think about this. What if, what if the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, all right? He's the richest man in human history ever, okay? What if he came up to you and said, I want you to be my fund manager. Now, what would you say to that? Well, you would probably say, well, what are the terms? And he said to you, well, I'm going to give you a large sum of money and and you can keep 90%. You can just keep 90% of it. You can do whatever you want to do with that 90%. You can spend it, save it, invest it, do whatever you want to do. It's yours. You just do whatever you want to do. All I ask is you take 10% and invest it what would you say? You say, where do I sign, right? You would say that. And we have have money managers in our church, financial planners in our church, and they would say, that's a really good deal. You're not going to get that deal anywhere else. You need to take that, right? But isn't that essentially what God has said to us? Isn't that the deal that God has made? The the God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills? You know, the God that owns it all has come to us and said, I really want you to be my financial fund managers. You can do whatever you want with with 90%, just invest the 10. That's what God has said. Now, some of you push back and you say, but Scott, you know, tithing is an Old Testament thing. We're not under the Old Testament. All right, let's go with that for a minute. Let's say that I concede that. Let's just say, okay, you're right. It's an Old Testament thing. We're not under the Old Testament. All right, but just think about this for a minute. Just consider this. And let me, let me bring it up in the form of a question. As believers, is the standard higher in the New Testament or lower in the New Testament? You guys know what I'm saying? So, so which one, which standard is higher? Uh, believers in the Old Testament or believers in the New? What would you say? 
We'd say the new, right? Because in the New Testament, we have more grace. In the New Testament, we have more of God's revelation. In the New Testament, we have more of Jesus, do we not, than they had in the, in the Old Testament. So I would make the case that the standard is not 10%. It's actually higher than 10%. Now, what do you say to that? You say, Scott, you're crazy. That's what you would say, right? But it's, it's really the truth. Now, as a pastor, the thing that I know is, you know, I've done this long enough to know that people don't start giving 10% overnight. I get that. Uh, but you should start somewhere. And, 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 and you should start investing it like God has said. You got, you, you got to start somewhere. Why? Because we're God's fund managers. You see, what I think I own is really on loan from God. That's the first thing, all right? But here's the second one. What I think is a quest is really a test. What I think is a quest is really a test. See, I think many of us see money as something we need to pursue. I think, I think we see money as a quest, something that we go after, something that we pursue, something that we chase. And part of the reason why we see it as that is because the world tells us that you're not going to find happiness anywhere else. The world tells us the key to significance, the key to security, and the key to satisfaction in life is through money and stuff. That's the message of the world that we get consistently and constantly. In other words, the more more money you have, uh, the more important you are, the safer you are, the more, uh, you know, the more satisfied you are. And so the world tells us that if, you know, you want to feel significant, you know, that you need to understand that your net worth determines your self-worth. That's the message of the world. And the world tells us that ultimate security in this life is having something in the bank account. That's what they tell us. The, The world tells us that happiness comes from having stuff. Now, in money, the problem with all of that is the world overpromises and they under and it underdelivers. Because the thing about money and the thing about stuff is that it is never enough. It's never enough. You know, and this is something I've asked so many times but I come back to it. How much money does it take to make a rich man happy? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. You never have enough. You never have enough. I like how Jim Carrey puts it. He says it like this. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they've dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. But we're told repeatedly that it is. And we fall for it most every time. We're told repeatedly that it's the secret. And it's interesting to me, you know, as I was, I was kind of doing some research on this, you know, the United States as, as as citizens of the United States, we, we enjoy a greater wealth per capita than anybody else in the world. I mean, we've got home ownership and car ownership and, you know, we've got health care and education. We, we have everything. But on the happiness scale, the world happiness scale, we come in at rank 33 on the happiness scale. 
And you would think that with all the stuff that we have, that that, that would make us number one, but it, it really doesn't. Why? Because, because it doesn't deliver. And I think what Jesus is saying in this parable is that money is not a quest as much as it is a test, that it's a spiritual test. God gives us money to test us. It is the acid test of faith, that money is the biggest test in your life and God uses it over and over and over to see where your faith is. And so that's exactly what's going on. It is what Jesus is saying in this parable is the area and the management of our finances is a daily test of faith. You know why? Because of the nerve, the most sensitive nerve in your body is the nerve that runs from your heart to your wallet. I'm not kidding right? You know how I know that? Because the minute I start talking about money, the tension level in the room just rises a little bit. You guys know what I'm saying on that? And let me just, let me just show you this right from what Jesus said. Don't take my word for it. Look at what Jesus says in verse 11. He says this, if you've not been faithful, if you've not been dependable and reliable in unrighteous wealth, money, and income, Who will entrust you to true riches? Now, what he's saying right there is this. Money is a test. God's given you a pop quiz, and he gives it to you every single day. And he wants to see, are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to put him first? Are you willing to demonstrate faith in him? And so it's a principle that Jesus gives us that how I I handle my finances is a is determinate and how much God can bless me. In other words, there's a direct connection between the bucks in my life and the blessings in my life. It's a test. And I think that is exactly what God is saying. Jesus is saying, you know, I want to give you true riches, but you're not passing the stewardship test on this unrighteous wealth. People will come to me and say, as a pastor, they'll say, Scott, my life is a mess. You know, I don't feel close to God. I'm not growing. You know, I'm not serving God. I don't sense his presence in my life. My, my life is, you know, just kind of falling apart. It's out of control. And one of the things that I say is that there's a connection between money management and your spiritual life. That there is, that oftentimes our, you know, our finances reveal our priorities. In other words, inconsistent giving produces inconsistent living. You know, that unmanaged finances are really symptoms of an unmanaged life. And I think that's at the heart of what Jesus is saying. So what I think is a quest is really a test to see if I'll trust God. But there's the, there's the central point of this parable, and that's the third one, and that's the one I want us to focus on, and it's this. What I think I need is more money. But what I really need is love. I think that's what Jesus is saying. We think we need more money to solve our problems. Uh, What we're really after is love. We get so preoccupied and consumed with money. But the truth is what we really long for is to love and be loved. All right, let me show you where I'm getting this. All right, look at, look at verse eight. Look at, look at what he says. He says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. 
For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, let me just ask a question. What did the manager do? In this parable, what did he do? What he did is he abandoned the opportunity for short-term gain so that he could have long-term gain. What he did is he he turned his back. He shunned profits in the short term so he could have relationships in the long term. And what Jesus is saying is even people who are not believers do that. Even people that are not God followers have the wisdom to understand what's more valuable, profits in the short term or relationships in the long term. That's what he's saying. But notice what he says. He says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails. Now, I took, I did a little digging on that word unrighteous because it was, it's kind of interesting. It was just stood out to me. I wanted to know kind of how, where that word came from and what that word really means. Obviously, it can, it means not righteous, right? I mean, we get that. That's pretty much uh, obvious. Uh, It can mean evil, certainly, but it also means worthless, So what Jesus is saying here is make friends for yourself using money, using worthless earthly money. It's worthless in the long run. So that when it fails, so so what's happening here is the reason why earthly money is worthless is because ultimately it will fail. That's what he's saying. Now, think about this. There's no material thing that you can invest in. There's no asset that you can have. There's no real estate that you can buy. There's no stock that you can invest in that's going to last. It's just not going to last. You can bury your money in Fort Knox, but one day Fort Knox is going to be destroyed. One day all of our money is going to be gone. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not a long-term investment. And, and so there's nothing in this life that will last. And so what he says is this. He says, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, you know what he's talking about here? He's talking about heaven. And how does he describe heaven? Eternal dwellings? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the description, but there's another descriptor of heaven. How does Jesus describe heaven in this passage? Friends. That's how he describes it. He says, make, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of earthly wealth, earthly money. Use earthly money to make friends so that they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the best investment for my money and yours is to invest it in people to, so that I will have friends for all of eternity. Let me, let me show you how one Bible commentator, his name is Michael Wilcock. He's written a, gospel, a commentator on the gospel of Luke. Let me show you this quote because he just... He just kills it. He just crushes it. Let's look at what he says. Although these things, your property, ability, and time, 
belong to this life only. Jesus says, yet what will happen to you then when you pass into that life will depend on what you are doing with them here and now. Make sure that, you, you, that your use of your money brings you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond death. Do you catch that? So we're so busy, consumed and occupied by, by making money, and we're so consumed with the here and now. What Jesus is really trying to say is this, what we really want is love. What we really want is a love that's not here. What we really want is a love for all of eternity. And what Jesus is saying is the best use of your money is to use it to make friends who will love you for all of eternity. That's what the manager realizes. That's why Jesus commends the manager because he comes to understand relationships are more important than money because relationships outlast money. The relationships are eternal. He abandons money in the bank in order to create friendships over the long haul. That's exactly what this, this manager does. Now, you know, in, I don't know how many of you have been watching, you know, the hurricane coverage. You know, it's kind of 24-7, the Hurricane Florence and everything. But ha- haven't you all heard people say, you know, my million-dollar beach home was destroyed, but my, my kids and I are safe, and that's the only thing that matters. Isn't that the truth? Like our stuff, I mean, that's a sermon right there. Like our stuff really doesn't matter. What matters is people. That's what they're saying. And and so it's relationships that matter, not the beach home. But the world comes back and tells us, no, it's stuff and money. It's stuff and money that's the key to security and significance. You know, we look at money to give us security and significance. And so what I say is, if you have the entire world and yet everybody hates you, you're not going to feel very significant. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah. So it really doesn't matter. You know, if you're providing for your family, you know, a six-figure income with boats and cars and houses and vacations and experiences and all of this, and you're never home to invest in love your family, what good is that? You see that? And yet, what is the American dream? Boats and cars and vacations and working 80 hours a week. The thing that gives us significance is not money, it's love. The thing that gives us security is not stuff, it's people. That's what matters. That's what Jesus is saying. And what I think I need is more money. It's really a a delusion. It's really a lie. What I really want, what I'm really after is love. And you will feel more wealthy when you are surrounded by people who love you. I think that's at the heart of what Jesus is saying. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. And um, I think I could watch this a thousand times this movie I really do I think I have watched it a thousand times actually it's my one of my favorite movies it's the it's the movie it's a wonderful life and you guys remember the story you 
everybody here has seen it. But on the off chance that you're the one person who hasn't seen it, um, it's the story of George Bailey. And um, George runs, he owns a business, it's the Bailey uh, Savings and Loan. And he spends his life running this business and he demonstrates a selflessness. He demonstrates a, a compassion, a faith and trust in people through his business dealings. And his focus is blessing others rather than seeking self-advancement. That's kind of how he's lived his life. But then something really bad happens that turns into something really awesome. His Uncle Billy, his forgetful Uncle Billy, loses $8,000, which back in this day, you know, was a lot of money. And so um, it was just a, you know, mistake. It was just, a, you know, complete, you know, misfortune. And so George realizes the implications of this. That the, his business is going bankrupt and he's going to jail. And so George is really struggling with, you know, what's going to happen. And so he's... he's he really is down, he's discouraged, and he can't see what's really happening in his life. And, and, uh, and so he thinks he's worth more to his family dead than alive. And so he finally makes it back home where his wife is, and word has gotten out that George Bailey is in trouble and he needs some money. Let me show you the clip. George Berry did it. She told yeah. some people you were in trouble with it. They scattered all over town collecting money. Didn't ask any questions. Just said, George in trouble. And tell me you what is this? Uh, like it's red like fair. Another run on the bank. E.I. George, Merry Christmas. There we are. The line farms on the right. from London. Oh. Mr. Gower cabled you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. Oh.
like there's a fool flew all the way up here in a blizzard. Harry, how about your band for the New York? Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast. <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> love that because what they gave us is clarity over what's most important in life money is just a tool people are valuable people are what lasts forever it's all about relationships you guys and George thought he had nothing but he was the richest man in town because he had friends. You see how the world dupes us? Do you see how the world deceives us? And we live in that deception because we can't really see the truth. Jesus says, use your wealth to make friends so that when, you know, you step into heaven, they welcome you. You know, so, so what that kind of looks like, it, it, you know, it reminds me of back before 9-11, you know, when you could go to the airport and you're waiting on a family member and loved one, you could go right up to the gate and wait for their arrival. And then they walk through and you just, you're just, eyes are filled with tears and your heart is so warm and you just hug them and kiss them and tell them you love them because you haven't seen them in so long. I think that's what heaven's gonna be like. When we step out of this life through death into eternity, I think, our family members and friends will be welcoming us on the other side. And you know what the reason why? It's because we used our time and our treasure and our talent to get people there. We, we, we gave away, we lived a life of faith and, and that faith produced life change. And so practically you're like, Scott, what does this really look like? I, I think it looks like this. We're to use money to help get people on the mission field. And so when a missionary goes and somebody gets saved, that, that person who's saved is gonna welcome us into eternity and say, hi, my name is so-and-so because you gave, I'm in heaven now. I think that's what it's gonna be like. I think another thing that you can do is you can invite a friend to church and take them out to lunch afterward and, and pay for their lunch and share Jesus with them. And I think one day in heaven, they'll say, you know what? You didn't think I was listening, but I really was. And I gave my life to Christ and I'm in heaven because of you. You know, when you take some of your money and you buy a Christian book that's been a blessing to you and you give it away to someone else and you ask them to read it, I think that's huge. Use unrighteous wealth to make friends in heaven so that they'll welcome you into eternal dwellings. I think, I think when you give to stones, uh, you never know who's gonna come to Christ because of that. And so that's where we're investing as a family because I just, I just want friends. I, I want true riches. And the reason why all of that is possible is because of Jesus Christ because he left the riches of his glory and came here so that he could turn his enemies into friends. He left the riches of his throne to take his enemies and turn them into sons and daughters. And that's who we are. Church, there is no better investment. No better investment. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you own it all and you've asked us to be your managers. And I just pray for grace, God. I pray that you give us faith. I pray that you would help us to see beyond the lies and the deception of the world and to have clarity 
over what's most important. It's people, not stuff. It's people, not pride. And so thank you that those of us who are far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. And I ask that you would just help us to be a generous people. And we thank you and praise you. And all of God's people said, amen.